0: Hey, Randy, what you doing? Oh, hey, Dave, I'm just making a list of things that make me feel really, really good. Wearing Bombas socks. Trust me, that's number one on my list. Bombas socks feel so good because we use the smartest design and best materials, making them the most comfortable socks ever. Plus, because socks are the number one most requested clothing item in homeless shelters, we donate a pair for every pair purchased, and that feels pretty good too.
1: To shop Bombas or learn more about how your purchase supports those experiencing homelessness, go to bombas.com slash comfy and get 20% off your first purchase.
2: This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden & Gregory.
1: Hey, I'm Tim Eccles. I'm vice chair of the Georgia Public Service Commission. I am on the road, really on the road, way across the ocean in Paris, France, at the World Nuclear Exhibition. I've been here every time they've had it 2014, 16, 18. We skipped 20 because of COVID, and back in 21. And here with me in my makeshift studio in the media section uh, is Daniel DeLoe, and he works with Andra. And Andra is is is, we're going to find out all about this, but it's the equivalent of Yucca Mountain for America. Welcome to
2: our studio, uh, Daniel. Hello. Uh, yes, I'm Daniel Law, So I work for Andra, the radioactive waste management agency in France. So we are in charge of the management of all radioactive waste generated in France. And we are in charge of proposing solutions for the final disposal of this uh, high-level waste from, from repro- uh, generated from reprocessing in France. You know, I, I really have
1: admired the French nuclear reprocessing. I have talked about it for 11 years that in America that we should be doing this because Daniel at our plant sites the nuclear waste from the 70s and the 80s are still sitting there we haven't reprocessed it like the French do because you all are able to take that waste and you're able to reuse most of it that is just a great idea Uh, is it is it continued to be something that you've seen people support
2: well uh, I I don't know if the people were very uh, uh concerned by the by the decision to reprocess in france but by the way uh this gives a consistency of the uh, of uh, in our project in well in our the way we we foresee deep geological repository is one of the main risks for long-term safety is intrusion so we want to avoid uh putting 500 meters uh, something valuable so, spent fuel has been excluded quite, quite early in, in our process, and this was consistent with our strategy to reprocess uh, the, the spent fuel and, and just to dispose vitrified waste, final waste. you cannot do nothing with that so and this is really well it, it was consistent with uh, our strategy our French strategy. What Daniel is saying
1: is that to take to take just spent fuel and put it in the ground for ten thousand years is a waste truly a waste because it still has a lot of energy in it so what the french have done and actually it's been it was american technology initially but the french have perfected it so what the french have done is taken all the fission products that can't be reused and they have vitrified them and that's what you're planning on putting down into a
2: repository right Absolutely right. So we we have designed this geological repository. Uh, Well, it will be located in the uh, the east part of France in a clay layer at 500 meters depth. It's a clay layer of about 140 meters thickness. Uh, So today we have completed all the engineering studies we have completed the safety case and we are compiling all this information to prepare the license application for this geological repository project. Uh, we expect to submit the application by mid next year, and uh, we are well, with the discussion we have already with the safety authority. We are expecting from three to five years for the, the examination of our safety case and uh, application, and then we hope to be, well, to be to have the license to start the construction of the facility well before the end of this decade. So let me just let me just compare this to the U.S. So we
1: um, back many years ago. Uh, had a kind of a site contest, uh, site selection process. The Yucca Mountain was was decided in Nevada that it was the most stable geologic rock formation in America. Uh, it, it was selected. A large tunnel was bored through that. The license project, uh, the license process had started, and. Under one of our former presidents, President Obama, um, and Senator Harry Reid, who represented Nevada, they decided that they didn't want to pursue it anymore, and so the license project, the license procedure, was terminated, and uh, in America, stopped planning for what to do. But the French, you all have been planning to do this for a long time. You're taking your time. You're making sure you're doing you're doing it right, and you're putting it in clay instead of rock. Why do you like clay?
2: Well, uh, clay has very interesting uh, uh, natural properties that are very interesting for us. While they have this ability to to capture some uh, radionuclide, uh, it is very tight. It's a very tight rock. You don't imagine clay as something soft. I mean, it is it is a hard rock. Huh? It is really a rock. Uh, while it is watertight, it is, uh, it is a sedimentary formation, so here at the location we are on the east side of the Parisian Basin, the geology is very simple, it is layer, above layer above layer, it is very the geology is very simple and there is no seismicity, so this is a perfect location and a perfect rock for, for the French project this is why we moved to, 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 to this one but before going to this one uh, in the year, uh, about the year 2000, 2005 we were, we, we were also studying granite and well we decide the parliament uh, decided in France by, uh, and it is a law we decided to go for clay at that time we felt more confidence to to, uh, to put to, uh, to uh, um, affect to, uh, to, uh, to address all the safety long-term safety performance to geology instead of addressing them to engineering or engineering buyers uh, like containers and things like this so we it is a very cautious approach. Uh, while we we don't believe too much in engineering uh, solutions, so we, we try to to, to to define a solution while based on natural uh, natural elements. Uh, y- uh, get uh, get a good use of the of the nature as much as we can. So we have a stable region, a simple geology, a watertight uh, rock, os- rock, and this is well, this, this was very adequate for, for our project.
1: In Georgia, we're building two AP1000s, and we've had a lot of trouble. We're over budget, we're over time. And I think what happened in the US, because for decades we stopped building nuclear energy, and we never reprocessed it. And so a lot of the institutional knowledge, a lot of the supply chain had moved to France. France has all of these vendors, these suppliers who are experts. And, in fact, I heard the president of EDF, the big French utility, I heard him say today that the reason people should build EDF small modular reactors is because of the team, because France has the supply chain of experts and materials to do it right. And I, I have to agree that, that fr- the, the French really are superior when it comes to building nuclear facilities. You're, what, almost 70% nuclear energy?
2: Yes, we are at about seventy percent nuclear energy for for electricity production. Uh, one one very specific uh, aspect of the French strategy is we we cover all the fuel cycle from from the the, the, the beginning, from the the, the, the process to, to, to generate power and to the waste management from. Uh, predisposal, storages, and then at the end, uh, dip, uh, uh, disposal, final disposal. Uh, today, uh, well, the, since the, the beginning of the French program um, in, the, in the 70s, uh, today, three-thirds of the waste that has been generated up to, up to now, they are already disposed. So we, we have solutions everywhere. And uh, the last, the last element for the for this very low, uh, for this high-level waste to be disposed in a deep geological repository. Uh, well, we are completing the, the the studies, and we we are, we are going for a, a license application. So, well, at the end of the de- decade, uh, well, we 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 should be able to cover all the aspects of the nuclear activity.
1: Just another minute in the in the segment here. Did you hear what my guest said? That that. France has focused on closing the fuel cycle. And what what that means is they do something with the waste. They don't leave it sitting there. What we're doing in America is the equivalent of leaving your trash out on the street and never picking it up. And in France, y'all have created a sustainable solution
2: to nuclear energy yes absolutely and this is why andra we we are state owned agency i mean this is really the involvement of the, of the of the government of the french parliament to say that well long term safety related to waste only a government a state can uh, can manage that so we have very uh, separate responsibility in all this chain and everything has to be consistent so we have all this uh, this um, uh, uh, five years um uh, uh, energy plan with uh, the in relation to that uh, the waste management plan in front this goes to parliament they go to de- public debates and so every every discussion every decision is is really well uh, something shared and re- with clear responsibility to everyone wow
1: this is phenomenal congratulations for your great work folks you can find out more about Andra at www.andra. that's A-N-D-R-A dot F-R, like France, Andra dot and
2: F-R. An, for English, there, there is also an English page, so you, you just have a link, E-N, on the top of the page, and you can jump directly to English.
1: And I encourage you to check out their 3D simulation, look at the Lego d- display that I'm going to put up on our Twitter page at Matters Radio. Daniel, thanks for being on the show today.
2: It was really a pleasure. Thank you.
1: I can't wait to be back at another WNE. This is Tim Eccles. Stick around for another segment from the World Nuclear Expedition. You're listening to Energy Matters.
0: Energy Matters would like to thank Gas South for its support of the show. Gas South has a no-deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per-therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. Gas South, the difference is good.
3: Gas South believes in the difference we can all make. Like the difference
0: in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit and the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at gassouth.com GasSouth, The difference is good
1: bmvw is the place in metro atlanta to get your used hybrid plug-in hybrid or fully electric car they're located on the south side near the airport but it is well worth the drive go online to look at their inventory at ev-hybrid.com and set up a time to see the vehicle or even drive it for up to three days i don't know of anywhere else in metro atlanta that you can do that that's ev-hybrid.com the best deal in town ev-hybrid.com, ev-hybrid.com. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an Amlaw 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. Hey, Tim Eccles back with you on Energy Matters uh, here in Paris. Tough life, I know, uh, but I'm here not at state expense, by the way. Here representing the U.S. as I have in 2014, 16, 18, and now 22 with Jarrett Adams of Full Own Communications. Jarrett, you and I have
0: met here before. This is a fantastic conference, the biggest nuclear conference I've ever been to. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, it's really great to be here with you again. Um, it's so great to be back in Paris and be going anywhere nowadays, but it's also really great to see all the great energy going on in nuclear right now.
1: In our first segment, we featured a Daniel from Andra. their are uh, I guess, the French state run agency in charge of radioactive waste. And, uh, you know, I-, I couldn't help but think about. All of our struggles with Yucca Mountain, uh, all the waste sitting at, at the two plants in my state, uh, all the discussion going on about consolidated storage in America, but we just have not been able to move this ball forward.
0: That's right. I mean, we we face some real challenges in the U.S. Of uh, we, of course, we manage our waste well right now. The waste is all very safely and effectively managed at nuclear plant sites. But what we really like to do is move it somewhere else, either to a couple of consolidated interim storage sites or ultimately to a deep geological repository like Yucca Mountain. But all that has been kind of on hold for a while. So, um, you know, it's nice that we're starting to see some signs of progress. Jerry, one of the things I was surprised about
1: is that the French are gonna be putting their final waste into clay where we were looking at rock and they had all kind of reasons why they were going to do clay. They had looked at rock first, but you have to wonder if the French maybe know a few things that we
0: don't about nuclear. Well, I mean, look, the the Yucca Mountain project, the project was proven that it would be would be safe over a 10,000-year lifespan. I think the reason that Yucca Mountain has been stalled for the past decade or so is really p- based on politics and public perception. So I think we're seeing some good signs. The other day, the DOE announced that they were going to resume consent-based siting, which I think could potentially de- deblock the, this 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 logjam that we've seen for the past Few years, um, you know whether or not that that moves forward Yucca Mountain, or maybe you'll move forward some of some of the other op- op- possibilities, like interim storage, like some potential other solutions for for, for managing waste. The thing is, is there are solutions waiting to happen. We just need to move forward with them.
1: So let's break down this consent-based siding. Like we have waste in our state. There's a lot of states that have waste. Obviously, if you never had a reactor in your state, you don't have waste. But consent-based siding, I guess, means that we're going to maybe move it off of a plant that's no longer open uh, to another state that's willing to take it. How does that work?
0: So what it means really is that the sort of the local and state communities have a right to say whether they want to have those waste facilities in their state which i think is a good thing because ultimately you're going to need the 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 local and state communities to agree to have them so whether you know whether you force it on them or you get get their get their collaboration it makes a big difference and i think that's a positive sign it you know i think the devil is into detail how they implement that and how how that plays out but i you know i think that's 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 important to, to, to make this all come together. And so we'll, we'll see where it takes us from here. But, it, but on, the, on the face of it, it's a positive sign.
1: Jared, I had talked to our previous governor, Nathan Deal, before um, Brian Kemp, about the idea of, of, of doing a Heritage Foundation plan with Arriva uh, in the U.S. of where uh, Georgia – would house a reprocessing facility. We would obviously be compensated for it. It was, it. it was about a $20 billion facility not built at U.S. taxpayers' expense. And our governor was very interested in in doing that. Uh, but uh, do, you, do you feel like there's going to be a state that steps forward and says, yeah, we would like to be compensated for housing spent
0: fuel? I do. I think those two projects and in, in West Texas or in New Mexico are good possibilities to be those interim storage sites. I think what happens too is when you move that final waste off of the plant site and to another location, it shows those host communities of nuclear power plants that the industry has a plan for when the plant is decommissioned and removed. So you can rem- take a plant site and bring it back to back to the natural state it was be- practically before. And so that makes people say, okay, look, the nuclear industry has a plan for cre- from 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 the beginning to the end of the whole cycle, and I think that'll raise the confidence level and support for nuclear energy in general, which I think is important because it's an important tool in our low-carbon energy portfolio.
1: This French model—I don't know if you saw the the Lego, the Lego model that they made and their three D rendering. This thing's 500 meters underground in clay, and. You know, on the top it looks like a cow pasture up there. I mean, yeah, it's got it's got, you know, obviously a receiving area, but it doesn't look very industrial.
0: No, and that's the thing. I mean, when when you have a deep geological repository, you're not going to have a huge huge effect on the surface. It's it's mostly below ground. I know Finland is moving forward with their deep geolo- deep geological repository. They broke ground on it very recently, and they're making great progress. And they expect that when it's all done, you'll have virtually no no um, presence on the surface of it. So it really is very effective solutions for managing waste over the long term. And again, I think it's a critical tool for increasing the public confidence in nuclear energy, which I, which we all know we need to expand if we're going to meet our net zero climate targets. All right, here's the dirty little secret that I don't think that folks want
1: to talk about. And that is, if you don't have a plan to do something with that waste, quote waste, it still has a lot of energy, I would say reprocess it. But if you don't have a plan to do anything with it, then the entire process is not really sustainable.
0: That's right, Tim. Um, the thing is, is, is when you have this plan for dealing with the waste, it shows that shows that nuclear is a completely sustainable solution. So you bring that together with the fact that nuclear doesn't emit greenhouse gases, it, it, it becomes a really complete solution for dealing with the climate. Because nuclear, as you know, is 24-7, operates regardless of the weather, it's highly resilient, operates totally near its capacity factor, which means that it, it produces almost as much power as it's capable of almost all the time. So when you marry that with, with, the, with the plan for managing that waste, then you really are, are going to see even more, even more support for it. And we're already seeing increasing support for nuclear. I think this will help us.
1: You know, the French have, I guess, 60, 70 percent of their energy or their electricity generated by, by nuclear energy. To, to me, as we sit here in this country today, it is an amazing feat that, one, they've been able to do it. And one, that they've been able and two, that they've been able to keep public opinion with them uh, on this. It's just uh, really a, a, a remarkable marketing effort.
0: Absolutely, you know that's one of the things when you're riding around on the trains in, in France. You know they're all powered mostly by carbon-free nuclear energy. And I know you're a electric vehicle driver, just like I am. I mean, when I power up my electric vehicle, I like to know that it's being par- charged by low-carbon power. And if more nuclear we have in the United States, lower carbon mix we're going to have for those electric vehicles, for electric trains, for all the things we're going to need to do to sort of decarbonize our economy in the U.S. You know, I don't remember the kind of excitement at this
1: conference that I've seen this year. I don't remember this many people. Uh, And I have to wonder if with the change in messaging that I'm hearing that, that, you know, small modular reactors, nuclear in general, can be used for more than just electricity. It can be used for district heating. It can be used for the production of hydrogen. and I tell you, if I, I've, I've heard hydrogen as many times as, as I've heard the word nuclear here. Um, I, have you ever seen so much excitement for the industry?
0: No, I'm, I'm seeing really new excitement for nuclear. And not just sort of the same old nuclear, but new nuclear designs. Small modular reactors that we can build in factories and ship to the sites. Advanced reactor designs that can do, uh, it, it replace uh, fossil fuels and industrial heat Um, new uses for nuclear in ways we haven't done before micro-reactors that can power Arctic communities and mining sites all of these things where you used to have one type of reactor now we'll have a whole portfolio of reactors from tiny to large that we'll be able to use in various ways, it's really exciting Just a couple of more minutes uh, in this segment
1: I mean this conference is coming off of COP26 and I wasn't at COP26, Uh, the Biden administration didn't put me in the delegation, (laughs) but the Russians apparently played a pretty significant role there in kind of giving uh, some additional inertia to nuclear.
0: Yeah, I think we're seeing lots of movement from from other countries. Um, Russia and China are, are, are moving forward very rapidly on nuclear energy. I think for the US to remain competitive, we need to up our game. And we're seeing some great signs of it. There were some great initiatives in the ARDP, the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program, um, that gave some money for some new demonstrations, small modular and advanced reactors projects in the US. Um, that was, that's great, but we need to do more. We need to do more and we need to do faster because as the United Nations climate reports say, we're gonna to need to either even double or triple our nuclear capacity, and to do that, and for Americans to be competitive in, in, in fulfilling those new reactor orders, we need, to, we need to get on it and start moving the ball. Well, how can folks find out about full-on communications? Well, you can go to our site, fulloncom.com, and uh, and Google us up. You know, we're, we're a company that, that specializes in communications about clean energy, and we're, we're happy to work in the nuclear sector because we believe both nuclear and other carbon-free sources are important for us to deal with climate.
1: Well, stick around. I've got another segment from WNE that we would uh, love to have you hear. Uh, this is Bill Magwood coming up, uh, a legend in the nuclear community Uh, So we've got an interview with him. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We talk all the time on Energy Matters about buying a used EV instead of a new one. Let someone else pay the depreciation. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, can fix you up. Go to their website at ev-hybrid.com to see the ever-changing inventory. BMVW has every brand, every type of EV, and they'll even let you test drive it for three days, show you how to charge it, and drive it for maximum performance. That's ev-hybrid.com, ev-hybrid.com. Reducing pollution from the transportation industry is an important goal, and few alternative vehicle fuels offer the distinct advantages of compressed natural gas. I myself drive an F-150 C&G pickup. Marlin Compression, part of Marlin Gas Services, is helping to usher in this clean energy future to the Port of Savannah, too. Not only is Marlin Compression a trusted provider of CNG for fleet fueling, they are also working with Port Fueling Center on a state of the art CNG truck fueling facility. Learn more about the distinct economic and environmental advantages of using natural gas for trucking fleets of all sizes and explore all of Marlin's services by visiting marlincompression.com. That's marlincompression.com. Calculate your savings today. Hey, Tim Eccles, back on Energy Matters at the World Nuclear Exhibition. I came here in 2014. My guest, Bill Magwood, was here then with a new gig that he had just established here in Paris, France. Bill, you and I graduated from college the same year. We're the same age. You uh, at Carnegie Mellon with a physics degree me down at the University of Georgia with just an English degree. I mean you have uh, you have taken this physics thing all the way. For me it's been more difficult. Shakespeare, all the creative writing I did at the University of Georgia I guess it helped me eventually get elected because I have a PR degree a PR masters and a nonprofit master's but so you went to Carnegie Mellon in Pennsylvania eventually. Uh You were you know quickly into the nuclear industry
3: yeah after after leaving school, I started working at Westinghouse and um, worked as a scientist there for several years, and then eventually moved to Washington. Uh, to work at the Edison Electric Institute, where I got involved in policy and discovered I really like that policy stuff. So I've uh, been do- doing that ever since, but of course, went to the Department of Energy afterwards and uh, ran the nuclear program there and then to the NRC. And now I'm um, here in Paris. So it's been a ride.
1: Bill, in 2014, I had only been in office for three years. I was here, you know, first you know, international nuclear conference I'd ever attended. And it seemed like the message in 14 was all about safety, where the message this year is something I haven't heard before. It's that nuclear energy can supply not just electricity, but it can supply district heating and hydrogen and maybe other things. This is a a drastic change in messaging, even since 2018.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, I think that um, since the accident in Japan in 2011, we've been working hard to reassure people that we, uh, we have the safety issue under control and that regulators and operators around the world are do, have done the right things in response to the accident. And we spent years basically dealing with that. Um, What I think has happened in recent years is we have gotten over that hump. I think people are past the Fukushima incident and now looking forward and are much more interested in how to deal with climate change. And the understanding is growing that dealing with climate change means uh, looking at nuclear energy is one of the primary options.
1: You know, COP26 was just in Glasgow. and. I know that nuclear energy seemed to come out better from Glasgow than I had anticipated. Were you surprised at at, at, at at its embrace?
3: Well, I wouldn't go so far to say that it was embraced yet, but we definitely have seen some signs of progress. Um, my interpretation of it is this: that in the last few years, um, the IPCC and other intergovernmental bodies have focused on 2030 as an interim target to 2050. As you know, um, 2050 is where the net zero target has been set by many countries. But it's been made very clear by the UN. But 2030 is, a, is an interim point where we have to do it. have to see where we're going and the truth is that we're not doing that well Um, whereas we expected to see um, emissions reduced by up to 45 percent according to the scientists what we needed by 2030 emissions are on a path to increase, even with all the new commitments made by governments, uh, by 13 or 13% or 13 by 2030. So we're going the wrong way. So I think in Glasgow, people realize we weren't getting it done. We weren't making enough progress. And um, that brought reality to the conversation that wasn't there before. And as a result of that, that is why I think you're seeing um, countries are looking at all the options. And as they look around to say, well, how, what more can we do? Um, nuclear is the option that many of them had not been looking at, had not been talking about, and that's reasserted itself in the conversation. So I think uh, COP26 is is probably a little bit early for it to really be um, a core part of the conversation. But COP28, COP29, I think will be right in the thick of it.
1: You know, Elon Musk has had such an impact in the U.S. At, at, at changing hearts and minds about electric vehicles. I mean, most of us here in Paris are riding in a Tesla to and fro from the hotel because they have a whole fleet of them. I wonder, as you think about uh, millennials, and my wife and I have seven millennials, uh, so I know a little something about millennials. Their infatuation with Elon Musk, with space, with technology, with connectivity i just i just feel like millennials are going to be easier to persuade on advanced generation four reactors than their parents and
3: grandparents i think there's a lot of truth to that When when you when you look at what's going on today I think it's fair to say that the nuclear sector is undergoing a wave of innovation and excitement that really has not been seen since probably the late 50s, or early 60s. Um, and a lot of that's being driven by young people. You know, there's a lot of young people that, that got their master's and PhDs uh, from prestigious universities, and instead of going to work for big companies, um, they went off and started these entrepreneurial ventures and looking at new nuclear technologies and joining um, these uh, these very exciting small companies that are developing these Gen 4 technologies. So that's where their hearts are. They're, they're the ones driving this future. And, um, and I, I think a lot of it's due to them. And, and, it's, and it's really um, a reinvigoration of the nuclear sector that we needed for a long time is finally happening.
1: I've had a chance to go to several sites here in France, uh, Normandy at their reprocessing facility down in uh, the southern part of France where they, uh, where they fabricate, you know, MOX fuel. And I've noticed a younger workforce here. When I walk through our plants in the U.S., it's an older workforce and I, I mean maybe that just speaks to how well the French are doing at messaging to their own people the importance of nuclear energy?
3: Well, I think it's, it's complicated to look at France and use, draw that conclusion because in France there are um, there, there's a pretty tight mandatory retirement regime uh, as well as other well, European countries where in the US people tend to work a little, little bit longer. Um, and so there's more of a flow of personnel in, in French organizations than perhaps there are in some US organizations. But but I'll tell you, I've, I've been to many US companies and I, there is a pretty, pretty sizable crop of young people coming into the, the nuclear sector. And we're still graduating about five or six thousand um, people a year in the nuclear sector. So we're there, there's a lot coming. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't sell the US shirt on that.
1: You've talked about financing Nuclear plants. And uh, as we're here, I mean, you see countries like Spain, Belgium, uh, even Wales has their own little area uh, uh, there with the UK. You've got, of course, Russia. You've got, uh, you know, a quarter of this entire trade center is dedicated to French nuclear suppliers. Then I look at my little state of Georgia as we build two AP 1000s. The challenges of financing that with our regulated power company and then all the other co-owners, the EMCS and the cities. To me, after going through this for the last eleven years, I just don't know if a single U.S. state can 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 step up and do. What we've done I don't even know That I would sign up To do it again
3: Yeah I can certainly Appreciate that I mean Of course um, Even before The Vogel project Was started uh, When I was with The DOE We were developing Loan guarantees uh, To support projects Like that And and there was Ultimately a loan guarantee But not really That large Or, or advantageous To make a big difference um, I think in our analysis What we have seen Is that If this new wave Of nuclear innovation Is going to be free Fruitful, governments are going to have to step up. Um, you can't expect individual companies or in the U.S. states to sh- shoulder the burden and the risk. You're going to need um, national governments to pave the way. It doesn't mean they have to subsidize these projects, but they have to um, accommodate the fact that these the cost of money is much higher with these nuclear projects because they're all going to be first of a kind. And to reduce the risk associated with that, um, you're going to have to have the governments step in. And I, I, I certainly think that um, part of the answer will also be that these uh, technology vendors are going to have to be a lot better about staying on the cost and schedule than we have in the past.
1: Just 90 seconds more uh, in this segment. You know, I think about the 7,000 acres that we allow Georgia Power to buy on the Chattahoochee River right on the Alabama line. We spent $49 million doing site work on that. It is suitable for even an AP 1000, though I don't think there will ever be another AP 1000 built in the U.S. But I mean, as I look across the landscape of the U.S. and ask which state, which commissioners would sign up for what we just went through, it's only a handful, and so I am anxious to see what you just said happen. That is, federal government. Maybe through our, our, you know, Idaho National Lab or through another national lab, perfect this Gen 4 technology. And then somehow put a backstop on the pricing so that a a state can step up without destroying its entire budget.
3: Yeah, I I think the lesson learned from Vogel is the first-of-a-kind projects are first-of-a-kind projects, and they entail um, risks that are very difficult for the private sector to do on its own. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for national governments to recognize that and to try to de-risk these projects, um, either through demonstrations or some other mechanisms in order to make these technologies get to market because um, the, the truth is that people can't take these risks they, they, it has to happen on a national basis.
1: Well thanks a lot for being on Energy Matters today and for coming to uh, to WNE and doing the great job that you've done really your whole life <laughs> since you've graduated from college
3: It's been a real pleasure and it's good seeing you again.
1: Hey this is Tim Eccles stick around we'll be back with one more interview. You're listening to Energy Matters. Hey, Tim Eccles here, host of Energy Matters. Solar's growing like crazy in Georgia, and I certainly say buyer beware. It's great to have companies like Creative Solar USA on the job. Russ, why do folks need to reach out to you? Tim, we're going on to our 14th year, and we have the best staff and most experienced installers in the state to get the job done right. You can find out more at creativesolarusa.com or call 770-485-7438. That's creativesolarusa.com. Tim Eccles, host of Energy Matters, here with Jeff Pratt of Green Power EMC. Jeff, more and more EMCs are offering solar to their members, and you're seeing it grow like crazy across rural Georgia.
0: Tim, you're right. Co-ops in Georgia are doing a great job of deploying solar across the state. In fact, they're leaders in the country with respect to engaging
1: customers and deploying large-scale solar to benefit all their members. Hey, contact your EMC and ask them about their solar energy policy, or just Google Green Power EMC.
0: This segment of Energy Matters is sponsored by Hall Booth Smith. This law firm works with over 88 Fortune 500 companies, and they have offices from Brunswick to Athens, Tifton to Columbus, and, of course, Atlanta. We'd like to thank Hall Booth Smith for the great work they do with school boards, hospitals, cities, and counties all over our state. See more at hallboothsmith.com. Hey,
1: Tim Eccles back on Energy Matters. On the road segment now, way on the road over in Stuttgart, Germany, with Simon Edmonds. He works with the electric and hybrid uh, vehicle technology magazine. Uh, It's based in the UK. Welcome to Energy Matters. Thank you, Tim. Hey, uh, there's a lot of technology here, the supply chain for electric vehicles, batteries, more than that, but your magazine has been in existence for quite a while. You guys have been featuring technology about the hybrid powertrain the uh, the fully electric hybrid powertrain so
4: you've been doing a lot on this for many years absolutely we actually launched the publication back in 1995 and it surprises people that we used the word hybrid in it back then because uh, electric vehicles obviously were a thing but hybrid vehicles weren't really of the time so it's always been called electric and hybrid vehicle technology and as the name suggests we're looking at technology on the vehicles car bus truck batteries motors inverters chargers very much the industry bible and uh, yeah it's. It's just full of technology for anybody who's interested in electric vehicles.
1: From a UK standpoint, when was the first time, if you remember, that you saw any kind of hybrid technology
4: when it it, uh, appeared on a vehicle? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, I've been involved with the publication for 21 years, and I certainly know a lot more about electric vehicles now than I did back then, but I'm still no expert. I would say probably, I mean, I I test drove the electric Mini um, about 12 years ago now, but I think probably the first, well, we saw Toyota Priuses on the road from quite an early stage, but probably the first fully electric vehicle I can remember seeing on the UK roads is probably a Nissan Leaf, and again, we're probably going back about 12 years, so I'd say 12, 15 years when they first started arriving.
1: I had one of the early Nissan Leafs, a 2013 model. When I was over in the UK, I noticed they actually had some little panel vans using the same technology. We didn't have that vehicle in the US, but the UK was
4: able to get them. Um, yeah, I think the great thing about that, that, there's still a lot of driver hesitancy with, with regard to range anxiety in, in the UK. I mean, we're, we're funny people, but uh, certainly your pure battery electric vehicles now tend to be used more for utility vehicles and low distance um, sort just going around town delivery drivers things like that so yeah you'll probably see as many electric uh commercial vehicles on the road as you will actually passenger cars we're still very sort of reticent to uh, to get out of our petrol and diesel cars because of the range anxiety
1: the last time I was in the UK, I had a chance to ride in a black cab that was electric, uh, and I noticed it seated six people instead of five. It had air condition where the other ones didn't. I liked it a whole lot better.
4: Absolutely. Well, you and me both. I mean, I like I like my creature comforts, my benchmark. I mean, people often ask me, what car do I drive? And I have to say to my shame uh, that I'm still driving a good old petrol mini. Um, it's about 15 years old now. It's a birthday present to myself 15 years ago. Uh, and I'd love to buy a, a, an, an electric mini, but I've got nowhere to plug it in because I live in a little house directly on the street but with regard to the taxis um, yeah the London taxis who, who, who manufacture the black cabs uh, they've been doing pure electric and hybrid for many many years now but I, I know what you mean about the air conditioning because my benchmark um, where I live in Surrey just south of London and where a lot of my friends are where I went to university in Bristol literally 100 yards i sorry 100 miles door to door and until such time as I can comfortably do that journey in the dark in the rain in the cold with all my creature comforts on and not have range anxiety it's always going to be a concern to me so um, i think again london taxis uh short distances between charging they can afford to have all your creature comforts your magazine looks at larger trends worldwide
1: if you had to describe the biggest trend you're seeing right now in
4: electric and hybrid technology what would it be Oh, that's a very good question. I'd have to think about that. And the biggest trend, I think the main thing that we're all focusing on at the moment is, is um battery technology and and obviously range this seems to be the key thing now when when our publication first started in 1995 I, I've got all the issues back in my office in the UK and the very first issue it's about 300 pages but it's all graphs and charts and hypotheticals um, but these vehicles are on the road now so we know that they can do the job but what we want to do now is make that job better and more more efficient so I think probably we're, we're still looking really at, at battery technology to extend the range that's still the, the, the thing at the moment other than that looking around the vehicle. Uh, lightweight materials, low friction tires, glass alternative, anything just to um, better perform the power to weight ratio. You know we talk a lot about Tesla in the
1: US and uh, obviously Japan through the Toyota Prius technology impacted the hybrid technology. But as I look at electric vehicles and the proprietary charging that Elon Musk did, the superchargers, everything about his company really was just ahead of his time. And it seems to have
4: really laid down the standard for electric vehicles in the world. Oh, absolutely! I think people would say again. I, I'm just a humble sales and marketing guy. I'm, I'm not an expert. Just from a layperson's point of view, I think we would say that we're still trying to catch up with Tesla in terms of the technology. Um, you know, it, yeah, but Elon Musk did, you know, from the word go with the Roadster and all the subsequent vehicles. Uh, yeah, I mean they're lovely vehicles. They're affordable. They've got good range. And yeah, but I think I think the rest of in- industry, especially, it, it, it's it's interesting. I guess the the thing is with the big automotive OEM, especially your side of the water, you know, before Ford, Chrysler, GM they've almost got to unthink all their old technology before they can think about the new technology, whereas Tesla did it from day one and got a running start on everyone else. And Tesla offered that free
1: charging in the U.S. for the Model S's. And I know as Germany, they were bringing forward their vehicles in 2015. You had that Porsche uh, Panamera E-Hybrid, now Volkswagen, Audi. They they seem to be playing catch-up and... The charging over here is quite expensive. So Tesla really, I think, addicted their drivers to their car and their free charging. Um, and, and now as the Germans come along, I think they're having a much more difficult time getting their
4: traditional customers to move to electric. I, I, I think you're right. And again, Tesla were very clever. They, they made it um, a very easy decision for people to p- switch to electric. Yeah, you know, They gave them everything they needed to do it cheaply and efficiently. I mean, in the UK, we, we again, we, we have a, a, a very bizarre driver mentality in the UK Uh, you know we don't car share considering we're such a small island you'd think that we could you know we'd actually do as much as we could to to go those short distances together but what we have in the UK and I can't really speak for the rest of you but in the UK uh, we have this chicken and egg situation with regards to the charging infrastructure so you know people won't buy the vehicles until the charging infrastructure is in place and they won't put the charging infrastructure in place until there are enough vehicles on the car, on the, the roads to make it worthwhile. So what's interesting now is that in the UK, we've got the petrol companies uh, who actually, they have the infrastructure. They're called petrol stations or we call them gas stations. Yeah, they're all over the road, all over the country. They're just down the road. So we've now got a lot of the big petrol manufacturers, uh, petrol producers buying up charging infrastructure companies because they've got the infrastructure in place just to drop charges onto their forecourt. So um, BP owned Charge Master and there's various other partnerships there. Uh, so even the, the, the petrol companies are realizing that you know electric is the future and they're, they're a bit late but they're buying into it.
1: Let's talk about the racing world just for a second. Formula E, uh, the Goodwood, I believe, Festival of Speed that featured an electric avenue this year, and I know at Road Atlanta at the Petit Lama uh, in Atlanta we featured an EV performance corral in uh, trying to to reach out to these high performance uh, buyers and let them know that electric really is for them that they don't have to sacrifice anything about performance
4: are you seeing that kind of a move around the world i I think so i mean the formula e has been great on on many levels because one as you say it's educating the public that actually you can still have performance you can have range you can have everything You're, you're used to in your petrol or diesel car um you know and be and be doing the planet a lot more good. Uh, the other side, the, uh, similarly, um, you know, it is actually in the publication we we're always writing about. Formula E, there's Formula E Extreme now, which is like sort of off off-road um, electric vehicles, like Dakar Rally, things like that. Uh, again, you know, it's actually showcasing technology uh, that's you know can is gradually coming down to road vehicles, to passenger car. Much like uh, a lot of the, the technology we use nowadays was first developed by NASA, you know, for aeronautical use. So again formula e is actually as with a lot of regular formula motorsport is actually using technology that ultimately will find its way down into passenger car when it's mass-produced and more affordable
1: Just the last couple of minutes here. Um, you know, As as you think about the grid that's gonna supply the electricity for these automobiles, I know I regulate the grid along with my colleagues in Georgia, and we've been trying to get our grid ready by giving incentives for people to charge their cars at night, what we call a time of use rate. And to me, in states like California, maybe even Germany, where the grid maybe can be more constrained if the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, I think we're going to have to think about the power supply
4: and de- and delivering it in a way that makes sense. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, that opens up a whole new can of worms with regard to the, the whole wheel to well debate. I mean, you know, electric vehicles as an entity are fantastically environmentally friendly um, in terms of the emissions they don't produce, but of course, uh, if that electricity isn't being produced by renewable sources, uh, if you're still burning fossil fuels to make the electricity, then you're you're, you're no better off, really. So um, certainly in the UK, where where the the infrastructure of the grid is obviously much smaller than in other countries, um, we are encouraging people to to buy into the charging at economically viable times of the day. But also we have um, something called, within the industry as a whole, we have something called vehicle-to-grid, which is whereby uh, you actually can take... As power out of the grid to charge up your electric vehicle but equally at the end of the day you can put it back onto the grid and sell it back to the utility company so it's almost like you're using or the grid is using your car as an energy storage device uh, for when it's not being used as a vehicle so it's 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 becoming gradually a two-way process but again the problem we have in the uk in particular is that a lot of our electricity is still still produced by burning fossil fuels so until we've got wind farms uh you know, considering we're an island with lots of wind and rain and you know everything we should be doing a lot better with our renewable energy
1: well, thanks for being on
4: energy matters today how can folks find out about your publication well it's very simple tim uh, we've got a very well, i say it's a simple website but the, the, the title's a bit catchy so uh, if you just go on to www.electrichybridvehicletechnology.com, hybrid and you'll see the website there and you can download digital versions of our publication uh, going way way back to 2009 and in particular um, if you want to sign up for a free, free subscription if you work in the industry you can do that as well Thanks for being on the show today. Not at all, Tim. Nice to meet you. Hey, this
1: is Tim Eccles from Stuttgart. Energy matters. Thanks for listening today. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: Hi, I'm Randy and this is Dave. We're the founders of Bombas, the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. So comfortable, we sold and donated millions of pairs. To sell and donate a lot of socks, we became obsessed with comfort. We reinvented the sock from the ground up, adding comfort innovations along the way. It worked. People tried them, loved them, told their friends about them. Helping us sell and donate millions of pairs.
1: Try them now at bombas.com comfy and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com comfy.